Welcome to Broken Buttons, a show spotlighting underappreciated bands, artists, and releases. My name is Dennis Proctor, and each episode I'll cover a collection of buried treasures that I don't think get enough attention. In this episode, America's answer to Paul McCartney burns bright and then burns out. <gasps> Whoa! It's like a DJ thingamabobber thing. And then, this band's first album was rumored to be the reunited Beatles secretly recording under a pseudonym in the 70s. Could it be true? To hear the full songs I play in this episode, you'll have to listen on Spotify Premium or Mixcloud. If you're hearing me somewhere else, you'll only get short clips of the music. If you like what you hear, please support the artists I cover by buying their stuff. This is episode four of Broken Buttons, and it's a Beatles inspired one. Do you ever hear music that is so surprisingly good that you immediately get excited to share it with someone else? This is especially fun when you know the music you're about to share is perfectly in the wheelhouse of the person you're sharing it with. This happened to me the first time I heard Emmett Rhodes. Emmett might be the best known of the artists I've covered so far, but even though he's received a lot of attention over the past few years, he's still alarmingly under the radar to a lot of people who would surely love his stuff. You see, Emmett Rhodes' first album sounds exactly like the music Paul McCartney fans desperately hoped he would make after the Beatles disbanded. The entry for Emmett Rhodes' first solo release in the Mojo Collection album guide has the heading, The Best LP Paul McCartney Never Made. This is why I was so excited to share Emmett Rhodes' music with my parents. I grew up in a house where the Beatles and Beatles solo music were played all the time, especially McCartney and Wings. Beatles and McCartney music have been a staple for holidays, vacations, family get-togethers for years. My parents' song is My Love from Red Rose Speedway. We've been to see him together multiple times. It's part of our shared musical DNA. As expected, my parents thought Emmett's music was great. And now I'm excited for you to experience it. Your eyes are swollen Your eyes are swollen and sleepless those dreams of torment. If you're already a fan of the Beatles and their solo work, it's hard not to become a fan. Emmett Rhodes' entire first album is perfectly McCartney-esque from start to finish. Songs like this. I have to say the things I feel And this. And this. And this. 
See what I mean? Before basically everything ever recorded was a click away on streaming or somewhere else on the internet, discovering an artist like Emmett Rhodes was even more rewarding. Me and my friends would read fanzines and music magazines and buy music based solely on the reviews, usually because it compared one band to a band we already liked. Or we would scour the liner notes of our favorite albums and buy something from a band we didn't know just because they were mentioned in the thank you section. It was infuriating when this backfired, especially since we had a very limited amount of disposable income and you couldn't just return something you didn't like. One time, I threw a CD out the window of a speeding car because I was so disappointed. That was pretty stupid. The closest you could usually get to trying something before you bought it was going to a record store where they had these listening stations set up. But even then, they would usually just have a handful of mainstream artists the major labels were pushing that month. For a brief window in the 90s, Blockbuster, yes, the old video rental chain, bought a bunch of record stores and renamed them Blockbuster Music. Their gimmick was that you could listen to any CD in the store before you bought it. In reality, the staff acted supremely annoyed every time you asked them to open up a new CD and load it into the player. That didn't stop us from spending entire weekend nights sampling stacks of music we were interested in. I was thinking about the evolution of music discovery and how easy it was for me to stumble upon Emmett Rhodes in the past decade but how difficult that would have been to find someone like him by reading the limited number of music magazines I could afford or pressuring the blockbuster music clerk to open yet another CD by some dude that was listed on a flyer with another band that I liked from a mixtape. I mean, even if someone had told me about Eminem at the time, his music was long out of print and discogs didn't even exist. How exhausting. Luckily, the future has arrived, and along with it, scary accurate music discovery algorithms and brilliant curators with every great recording at their fingertips. Let's hear a full song from that Emmett Rhodes debut. From his self-titled album released in 1970, this is Fresh as a Daisy. That was Fresh as a Daisy from Emmett Rhodes' album, Emmett Rhodes from 1970. That was the hit from the album that honestly is packed with wall-to-wall hit-worthy tunes. The album even climbed to number 29 at the start of 1971. But let's go back a bit. And warning, Emmett's story starts exciting and full of hope and then gets, honestly, pretty dark and upsetting. Emmett Lynn Rhodes was born in 1950 in Decatur, Illinois. He grew up in Los Angeles, and he had music buzzing around him early on. He lived in the same neighborhood as the Beach Boys, and he went to school with Debbie Harry. Emmett started his musical journey as a drummer on an emerald green drum kit as a member of the Emeralds. That's Emeralds without the D for some reason. Emmett was 14 at the time. The boys renamed themselves the Palace Guard after about a year and donned matching red British Guardsmen's uniforms. 
They had a sort of hit in their single Falling Sugar in early 1966, which ended up on one of my favorite collections of all time, Nuggets, original artifacts from the first psychedelic period. If you don't know it, it's a great collection of garage rock singles from the 60s. The Palace Guard had some mild success. They even got to play the backing band for Don Grady, also known as Robbie on the sitcom My Three Sons. My Three Sons, starring Fred McMurray. Emmett didn't stay behind the drums for long. In fact, during their regular gig at the Hullabaloo in Hollywood, he regularly grabbed the spotlight for his rendition of Michelle by the Beatles. Looking for more than the Palace Guard had to offer, and inspired by his Beatles fandom, Emmett decided to form his own four-piece with him out in front on guitar and vocals. He called his new group the Merry-Go-Round. He also learned to write songs, and he was really good at it. That's a little bit of Live by the Merry-Go-Round with Emmett Rhodes on lead vocals and guitar. That song also found its way onto the Nuggets box set. Here's what the liner notes have to say about the Merry-Go-Round. Quote, Emmett Rhodes and Gary Cato were still high school students in the L.A. beach community of Hawthorne, California, when their first single, Live, became a big hit in Los Angeles in early 1967. A classy piece of Southern California-grown pop, the song's uplifting lyrics, rich Beatles-esque harmonies, and distinctive swaying beat show a maturity and sophistication few teenage garage bands could claim to possess. It continues, After the success of Live, A&M quickly rushed out an album, which revealed Rhodes to be a gifted songwriter, heavily influenced by Lennon and McCartney. The group went two for two when their second single, You're a Very Lovely Woman, also hit the top spot in L.A. But subsequent singles, though showing Rhodes' rapid maturation didn't sell as well. Relationships in the band quickly became frayed, and after several lineup changes, the merry-go-round split up in early 69." The single started to make money, so as not to waste the opportunity, the record company mixed down a bunch of the group's demos and put them out as an album. After this, Emmett decided to strike out on his own as a solo artist. And to avoid conflicts that come along with dealing with other band members or producers and engineers, he decided to become a one-man band and build his own recording studio in his parents' shed. Not even the garage. It was his father's shed built behind the garage. This was way before home recording was ubiquitous, even with major stars. Paul McCartney himself hadn't even released his home-recorded solo album McCartney just yet. Emmett bought an Ampex 4-track. He said it looked like and was the size of a washing machine with big black knobs for controls. And then he set about methodically recording an album. He played every instrument. He wrote every song. Because he only had four tracks to work with, after recording drums, piano, and bass, he'd have to mix those three tracks down to the one remaining track so that he could free up another three slots for lead guitar, vocals, tambourine, or whatever else he had in mind. It wasn't a quick process. Eventually, he rented an eight-track machine to speed it up a bit. Once he had a few songs recorded, he approached the label ABC Dunhill with the one-man band concept. They bought it, 
Emmett took the $5,000 that he got and sunk it back into home recording studio upgrades. Let's hear another song from Emmett Rhodes' home recorded masterpiece. This is Somebody Made For Me. Somewhere someone's That was Somebody Made For Me by Emmett Rhodes from 1970. DJs played up the Beatley buzz, some even stoking rumors that the album might actually be the Beatles or McCartney. Like this guy. Now, I'm not saying this is the Beatles or it isn't the Beatles. It's up to you to tell me, and a lot of people seem to think it is. We have uh, somebody... All right, you tell me who you think that is. The Beatles, or is that uh, Emmett Rhodes, like it says? I had Emmett Rose, or the Beatles, possibly. A lot of people called and said, uh, with my face on the... Back now, Emmett Rose, or the Beatles. All right, who do you think that is, Emmett Rose or the Beatles? Well, it's a mixed opinion. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, you know, all this Emmett Rose Beatle thing has got me... You tell me if you think the um, Beatles are the Beatles, or Emmett Rose is Emmett Rose. I don't know, maybe the Beatles are the Emmett Rose. Who knows? That was Barry Richards, a radio DJ from WHMC in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He milked this for a show's worth of content that went on forever. Emmett eventually made an appearance on the show and was interviewed by Barry. And whether you believe this or not, this is for real. We have Emmett Rhodes on the telephone in Los Angeles. Emmett, you're coming out of a speaker. Can you hear what I'm saying now? Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, where do we start? I don't know. Where do you want to start? I don't know. Who are you? I'm Emmett Rhodes. You're Emmett Rhodes. Where are you right now? I'm in Daniel The album received great reviews, and because it was selling so well, Emmett's prior label, A&M, got up to their old tricks again. Sensing another opportunity, they cobbled together some leftover merry-go-round tracks from an unfinished album with another batch of demos and released it as an Emmett Rhodes solo release. This confused record buyers. Thinking they were buying the Emmett Rhodes debut they heard promoted on the radio, many ended up buying the A&M competing but inferior release called The American Dream. Let's be clear though, The American Dream is still a really good collection of Beatles-esque pop tunes, however it's not on the same level as Emmett's proper solo album. The extra release muddied the marketing and cut into the sales of his first actual record. This was an early first blow to Emmett's solo career. The bigger tragedy turned out to be Emmett's contract, which called for him to deliver a new album every six months. This is just wild to imagine today, when artists might go five or more years between releases, but at the time, a lot of artists were expected to crank out multiple albums per year. Emmett knew that his contract was, in his words, a lousy deal, after all, it took him a full nine months to finish the first record. The math didn't work. His manager told him to sign the contract and they'd figure it out later. Emmett wasn't a legal expert. He wasn't an anything expert. He was barely 20. Emmett tried to be optimistic and figured he might be able to speed up the process now that he had better equipment and the experience of making one full album under his belt. The thing is, songs this good being crafted and recorded by one person playing everything 
take as long as they take. And that's longer than six months. Emmett liked performing, but he grew to resent it because it cut into his precious studio time. He didn't do much of anything outside of the studio. It took nearly a year for Emmett to deliver his second album, Mirror. He was only halfway into making it, and he was already in breach of his contract. Although not as powerfully consistent as the first album, it's another excellent batch of melodic pop songs. From the All Music Guide review of Mirror by Matthew Greenwald, quote, Following the critical success of his debut album, Emmett Rhodes, the one-man Beatles entered his home studio for the follow-up, and he did not disappoint. Although not as cohesive as his last record, Mirror is home to some of his finest material. Birthday Lady and Really Wanted You are almost stones-like in their attack, aggression, and feel. And Rhodes pulls them off with fantastic results. Golden Child of God is also one of his finest compositions. It also would have easily been at home on Paul McCartney's Ram. All in all, this album is not a disappointment, coming off his self-titled debut, Emmett Rhodes, which can easily be described as one of the classics of the period. Unquote. Let's hear one of the more rocking cuts on the album. This is Really Wanted You. That was Really Wanted You from Emmett Rhodes' second official solo album, Mirror, released in 1971. At this point, Emmett was buried in stress. He was being sued for a ton of money, and he was still on the hook to deliver yet another album. The record company seemed more interested in pursuing their contractual breach claim than promoting the latest album, which topped out at number 182 on the charts. His next album, Farewell to Paradise, was made under all of this pressure. Coming off an underperforming album in the midst of a legal mess, no free time to speak of, and no light at the end of the tunnel. Despite all this, Emmett turned out another really great record. From the AMG Review, quote, This, essentially Emmett Rhodes' third and final album, is once again a one-man band affair. It does differ, however, from earlier efforts. The record has a much more wistful, almost Harry Nielsen-like feeling, and this permeates most of the cuts. Although not as buoyant as his earlier efforts, Farewell to Paradise is still a very strong album and further cements his reputation as one of the great, albeit long-lost, artists of the period, unquote. His record label wasn't supportive. The album went unnoticed and Emmett was beat down and exhausted. Emmett said, quote, After that album, I stopped recording. I stopped writing because I was burnt out. It was a lot of work and it was a lot of trouble to boot. The harder I tried, the more trouble I was in. It wasn't rewarding anymore. I had taken a much longer period of time to do the third album, and they were suing me for more money than I'd ever seen. And I just thought, why do I want to do this? Unquote. He was only 24. And he was done. Emmett walked away. Burned out by the business, he went into isolation. He eventually worked on staff for Electra Asylum, working on other people's releases. He played a show here and there, 
and there were several almost new albums over the decades, but things didn't work out for one reason or another. He also struggled in his personal relationships over the years. He went through a very painful divorce, and his kids stopped talking to him. By all indications, the trauma he experienced as a young musician went deeper than record company pressures and lawsuits. In a rambling, near-incoherent interview with WFMU's Michael Shelley in 2010, it's clear just how dark it had gotten for Emmett. He makes comments about sexual abuse and pedophilia that took place when he and his Palace Guard bandmates were just starting out. I would not recommend seeking out this interview. It's very difficult to listen to, and Emmett is a complete jerk and an absolute mess. He makes multiple homophobic remarks trying to be funny, and he can't answer a single question without some dumb, snarky remark tagged on. I told you his story gets bleak. Over the years, there was news here and there that Emmett had continued to write and record, and had started to pull himself together. He seemed to always be on the verge of releasing a new album. He continued to tinker in his home studio, only now it was in his own garage, across the street from his parents' former house, and still so close to that shed he recorded those legendary lost albums in all those years ago. Emmett seemed to get his act together more recently, enough so that he finally did release his first album in more than 40 years in 2016. This time he let go of the one-man band concept and accepted the help of a talented crew of admiring musicians and producers, including John Bryan, Jason Faulkner, and Roger Joseph Manning Jr. from Jellyfish, Nels Klein from Wilco, Amy Mann, and Susanna Hoffs. And the record? It doesn't sound like the Beatles, and Emmett no longer has that peak McCartney tone, hey, neither does McCartney these days, but it's excellent in its own way. Rainbow Ends is a fittingly more mature, introspective record with the rugged, tuneful charm of a latter-day Elvis Costello record. Songs like If I Knew Then, This Wall Between Us, and What's a Man to Do are darker and brimming with regret, but the melodies and wit are still there in force. The album received universally glowing reviews. The All Music Guide review for this one says, quote, Listeners who were hoping Rainbow Ends would sound or feel like Emmett Rhodes' first album or Mirror were probably fooling themselves. And that's certainly not what the songwriter and his colleagues were aiming for. Instead, this is a more mature, introspective work from a man looking for answers to the questions of life and love. And it's a brave and genuinely impressive return to the spotlight from a major talent, unquote. This is my favorite from the album. It's called Dog on a Chain. You ain't no good. Hear her say under her breath as she turns away. I'll take the car, I'll take the house, I'll take the kids, and then I'll turn you out. I'll walk, let along like a dog on a chain out in the cold. That was Dog on a Chain, the leadoff track from Emmett Rhodes' 2016 comeback album, Rainbow Ends. And that was the official end of Emmett Rhodes' recording career. He passed away a few years later. On July 19, 2020, Emmett died in his sleep at his home in Hawthorne, California. An endlessly talented singer-songwriter who wrote some of the greatest pop songs that more people should have heard, but now you can Emmett Rose. You don't have to be alone to feel alone. You can have someone 
and still be alone Coming up next, a Canadian rock band that got swept up in an out-of-control rumor that their first album was actually really John, Paul, George, and Ringo in disguise. Wait, were they? Buzz sells records and concert tickets. At least it used to. Record labels go to great lengths to whip up a frenzy and recoup their investments in an artist. To stand out in the sea of new music releases, marketing a band's new record must go beyond the traditional interviews granted to music magazines and talk shows. Sometimes artists play secret, unannounced shows to drum up buzz. For instance, Radiohead playing a surprise show at LA's Tiny Troubadour Club. The Rolling Stones popping in at London's less-than-300-capacity Borderline Club. The Beatles performing their famous rooftop concert. Sometimes marketing gimmicks and publicity stunts are employed. Kanye West projecting his face onto 66 buildings to promote his album Yeezus. Katy Perry had a golden semi-truck tour the country to film fan-made videos for her new single. The best entry was awarded a free Katy Perry concert at the Winter School. 20,000-pound Michael Jackson statues installed all throughout Europe to promote his album, History. Sometimes these stunts backfire. Remember when U2 gave everyone a free copy of their new album by beaming it to every single iPhone? People were pissed. I had a friend that was so angry that U2 started playing every time she plugged in her phone and her car that she declared them her most hated band of all time. Or how about when Garth Brooks released an album as his alt-rock alter ego, Chris Gaines? Or what about the many failed attempts to have fan voting be part of the publicity? When Justin Bieber had people vote on which country he should play next, the internet trolls selected North Korea as his destination. When Taylor Swift asked fans to choose which school she should hold a private concert, the winning school was Boston's Horace Mann School for the Deaf. To her credit, she made a large donation to that school. In 2012, Pitbull partnered with Walmart and agreed to play a concert at the Walmart location that got the most likes on Facebook, which of course ended up being the most remote Walmart in tiny Kodiak, Alaska. Pitbull turned the backfire around by actually playing the gig, and there's a heartwarming video you can watch about the whole thing. More recently, record companies have had to get extra creative with their promotional efforts. With no live events, social media tie-ins are more prevalent than ever. Live streaming performances have been big. Ben Folds put on a weekly virtual concert, taking fan requests and telling stories behind his songs. 
Post Malone did a whole Nirvana tribute live stream on YouTube. Travis Scott even performed inside the video game Fortnite. I guess that's what I heard. This stuff gets attention and media coverage, which often translates to dollars. And sometimes a good rumor sells even more than any expensive, well-planned publicity stunt or multi-platform marketing strategy. Keith Moon driving his Rolls Royce into a hotel pool, which is actually kind of true, but is actually a mashup of two other real things that happened. According to Pete Townsend, quote, he left the handbrake off and the car rolled into a pool, which was under construction and waterless. In the other story, he charged a new car to the band who refused to foot the bill, so Moon drove that car into a muddy pond in his garden and called the dealer to pick it up. Cool guy. Or Keith Richards smoking his father's ashes. Or the stuff that people say Ozzy Osbourne did. Yeah, he actually did most of those things. Anyway, you get the picture. These stories are part of rock star myth-making. What about the perennial rock star death rumors? Avril Lavigne was replaced by a lookalike years ago. Celine Dion was killed in a car accident. Paul is dead. Or even better, the conspiracy theories that so-and-so faked their own death. Elvis, Tupac, and Kurt Cobain are actually still alive and they're recording new music for other artists to this day. And then there are the rumors that an album is actually a secret recording by someone else. A lot of times, these are actually pretty thinly veiled stunts of their own, like Green Day recording albums under different band names, The Network, or Foxborough Hot Tubs, or the aforementioned Chris Gaines-Garth Brooks debacle. Sometimes the rumors are total BS and quickly dispelled. We heard a DJ do that to create buzz for Emmett Rhodes earlier in this episode. The Emmett rumors didn't get very far because Emmett was on that same radio show not long after dispelling the rumors. And then there's and the then strange there's case strange of classic. In August of 1976, a mysterious album hit record shelves. The front cover included an earnest-looking face on a sun symbol. There were no photos of band members, no credits of any kind, just the name, Klaatu. In Canada, the album also included the cryptic subtitle, 347 EST. It didn't get widespread attention. It was reviewed here and there, and reviewed well, praised for its sci-fi concept and rich orchestral arrangements, but it didn't sell much. And then an article by Steve Smith ran in the Rhode Island Daily Newspaper, the Providence Journal, with the headline, Could Klaatu Be the Beatles? Before we get into the signs that pointed Smith to ask this question, let's tackle the biggest one, Klaatu's sound. Listen to the track, Sub Rosa Subway, and judge for yourself. Could Klaatu be the Beatles? Back in 1870 Just beneath the great white way Alfred B.
That was Clatu with Sub Rosa Subway from their debut record from 1976, an album rumored to be a collection of secretly reunited Beatles recordings. Steve Smith's Providence Journal article changed everything for the band. Here's a snippet from the article. Quote, Who are Clatu? That is the mystery. Their names are being kept secret by Capitol Records and Frank Davies, who handles the group's so far clandestine affairs. The group will not submit to any publicity pictures. A Capitol Press release says that they want to be known for their music and not for whom they are. They are rumored to be independently wealthy. Capitol claims to have no knowledge of the identities of the band members, but this raises a question. Why would Capitol invest in an unknown? It continues. Klaatu's album brings back memories of the Beatles on every song, especially Sub Rosa Subway, a song about the building of the New York subway system, and Dr. Marvello, about a man with mystical powers. Sub Rosa Subway sounds like 1968-1969 Beatles. The vocals are exactly like Paul McCartney's, the drummers like Ringo Starr's, and the guitar work like George Harrison and John Lennon's, unquote. And it wasn't just that the similar Beatles' sound and lack of information about the band gave the rumor steam. There were supposedly clues hidden in the album artwork and the music itself. Let's start with the name of the band. Klaatu. Klaatu is a reference to the 1951 science fiction movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Klaatu is the name of Michael Rennie's character in the film. The result is, we live in peace. Without arms or armies... Secure in the knowledge that we are free from aggression and war. Free to pursue more profitable enterprises. We do not pretend to have achieved perfection. But we do have a system. And it works. I came here to give you these facts. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence... This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. A peaceful ambassador from an extraterrestrial confederation who visits Washington, D.C. in a flying saucer with his humanoid robot, Gordon. Well, on the cover of Ringo Starr's 1974 solo album, Goodnight Vienna, Ringo is shown emerging from the same flying saucer alongside Gort from the day the earth stood still. There were more clues. Klaatu's album was released by Capitol, the American record company that had released the Beatles records. The album's publisher name includes KPAC, which is the Canadian equivalent to ASCAP, the American, or Canadian, not-for-profit performance right organizations that protect authors, publishers, and composers' copyrights. Anyway, the Canadian KPAC designation was supposedly significant because John Lennon was rumored to be moving to Toronto around the same time because the U.S. was trying to deport him. The song Sub Rosa Subway was maybe a play on the name of Paul's solo album named Red Rose Speedway. On the Beatles' Abbey Road album, there's a song called Sun King which the giant sun on Klaatu's album cover must be a reference to. Too far-fetched? Well then, how do you explain that by switching the initials of Abbey Road, A and R, they become R and A, or Ra, the name of the ancient Egyptian sun god? Ra. Sun King! 
Okay, yeah, that's out there. And there are dozens more, even more imaginative, quote-unquote, clues that point to Klaatu being the Beatles, including the supposed hint at the beginning of this spacey Klaatu hit. Are those Beatles buzzing at the beginning of the tune called Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft? Sounds like crickets to me. Wait! The Beatles' name was inspired by Buddy Holly and the Crickets. More clues! chances to win the new Klaatu album on Z93. Win it. Listen, listen, and decide for yourself. Sunday night at 9, Z93 will present an exclusive study on Klaatu with interviews with Klaatu's manager, Frank Davies. Win Klaatu all this weekend on Z93. That was Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft by the Mysterious... Klaatu. That song was an even bigger hit for the Carpenters. Richard Carpenter was a big fan of the band. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Anyway, the Klaatu or the Beatles rumor blew up. The story was picked up by other journalists, and soon the story was gaining steam around the world. And so were Klaatu's record sales. Because of all the buzz, Klaatu's debut album sold out everywhere and the record company couldn't keep up with the increasing demand. So who were Klaatu? According to the band's record label, Capital, who knows? Capital said they signed the band through Frank Davies, who'd released Klaatu's material on Daffodil Records in Canada. Davies said he had previously recorded and produced other Daffodil artists at Terry Brown's Toronto studio. Terry Brown was the producer for the band Rush, by the way. Davies said that Terry Brown played him two or three Klaatu tracks, and he loved them immediately. He told Terry he wanted to sign Klaatu sight unseen. Here's Frank Davies explaining more in an article for Louder Sound. Quote, my label was centered in Canada, and what I would do with my artists back then was I would go out and put together a U.S. deal, or deals around the world. 
I played the tracks to Rupert Perry, who was head of A&R at Capitol Records in the U.S. He loved them and said he would sign the band. Wait. So not only had Capitol not seen or met the band, but neither did the guy who signed them to their Canadian label and delivered them to Capitol. What's more, Davies told Capitol that he'd been told the band wouldn't be taking any photos, doing any interviews, providing any bios, or even playing live. The mystery band wanted to focus on the music. They wanted it to be all about the music, which they felt speaks for itself. In fact, they were already almost done with their second album by the time the Beatles rumor exploded. From Klaatu's second album, Hope, in 1977, here's We're Off, You Know. That was We're Off You Know from Klaatu's sophomore release, Hope, released in 1977. At this point, the Klaatu Beatles mystery was so big, it went beyond finding clues in the album art and music, people started to do some serious investigation. Frank Davies and Capitol Records couldn't keep up with all the requests for interviews. Rather than confirm or deny the rumors, they decided to play coy. Hey, records were selling and everyone liked the music. So what did it matter if anyone knew for sure? Eventually, someone produced some actual hard evidence. It was bound to happen eventually. Dwight Douglas, the WWDC program director in Washington, D.C., made a trip to the Library of Congress. He looked up the actual copyright records for the Klaatu song publishing. And in the end, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Richard... Ringo Starr Starkey were not glad to. No, Klaatu were John Woloshek, D. Long, and Terry Draper. Klaatu is Klaatu, which is also the headline that ran once the rumor bubble finally burst. And the backlash was significant. The truth was, the band was only vaguely aware of the Beatles' buzz while they were holed up making their second record, and they thought it was funny. Paul McCartney sent Frank Davies a postcard at the peak of the hype, saying he was having a laugh over the whole thing. No, Klaatu did not craft a master plan to release a mysterious album that would get mistaken for a secret Beatles reunion record. They really did want the music to be the focus. They were interested in maintaining their privacy, and frankly, they knew that the complex orchestral arrangements were not likely to be easily recreated live in concert. Capitol and Davies rode the mania to milk album sales, and it worked. And Davies knew good and well that the band that he had signed were not the four Liverpool lads, but rather three progressive rock nerds from Canada. 
wasn't particularly this song, but some of the other songs on this first album that are reminiscent of the Beatles. And there was actually a rumor started out of Providence, Rhode Island, some newspaper that this was the Beatles reincarnate, which was uh, a very nice compliment. I mean, to say that we sound like the Beatles is a very high compliment. To say that we are in fact them is that compliment a hundredfold. So we were uh, very impressed with that. It was very nice. But we're not the Beatles. The media and the public, however, perceive the whole thing to be an orchestrated scam, a grand hoax. Radio stations stopped playing Klaatu. Magazines stopped covering them. And people stopped buying their records, which is a shame because they're quite good. Klaatu needed a holiday. It happened back in ancient time When people worked overtime, overtime In fact, I think in 1985 Life was busy in the big city And they everybody took a That was Everybody Took a Holiday from Klaatu's third album, Sir Army Suit. The could Klaatu be the Beatles story is fascinating. The fact that any rumor like this, let alone one about the biggest band on the planet, could grow legs and take off seems especially strange nowadays when any and every bit of gossip is almost instantly confirmed or refuted in real time. But beyond the outrageous tall tale, the band warrants further investigation and appreciation. Klaatu put out five highly accomplished albums. They were not merely Beatles clones. Each album is packed with genre-shifting, ultra-melodic, highly complex songwriting and production that's bursting with creativity and wit. No wonder people fell for all of it. Klaatu's music backed up the story. In the end, the music really was the focus, as it should continue to be. Do yourself a favor and take a ride on the starship Klaatu. I never had a closer friend than you I never had such good times as the ones we used to have together You're the one I told my problems to Who through the years remain true blue No, I never had a closer friend than you But all good things must end no use trying to pretend it isn't so when it's time you okay we've come to the end of episode four thank you so much for listening broken buttons is written and produced by me dennis proctor you can follow me on twitter or instagram at broken button zero that's the number zero or at dr proc the Broken Buttons theme music is by DJ Chillchamp. Outro and interstitial music by Tiny Speakers and Noah Proctor. My thanks to all the authors, artists, interviewers, and publications I referenced throughout the episode. You can check out additional references, notes, pictures, and links from this episode and my other musical obsessions at brokenbuttons.com. Oh, and I post playlists of some of my favorite tracks from each artist that I cover. You can also contact me if you have a suggested band, artist, or release, or other topic for a future episode. You can also just let me know what you think of the show. If you leave a voice memo, I might play it on a future episode. Finally, if you like what you've heard, please consider telling your music fanatic friends about the show. 
I'll keep digging if you keep listening. Coming up next time, she's been called the greatest female MC of all time, but beyond dominating the underground hip-hop scene for years, she's also an actor, author, comedian, producer, playwright, in-demand lecturer, director, okay, I don't have enough time to list all her jobs, and also, I'll showcase a singer-songwriter who the New Yorker called perhaps the greatest unsigned artist in the business. All that and more on the next Broken Buttons. Baby, I'm crazy about you. Don't like the way you do Always mistreat me Say that you love me too Someday you want me And I'll be so far from you Then you will be sorry Babe, you do me like you do